0: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
1: And I'm Margaret Flinton. Well,
0: Margaret, it's hard to believe it's been 50 years since the march from Selma to Montgomery, Bloody Sunday, a pivotal moment in the civil rights movement when peaceful marchers were brutally attacked by police while trying to cross the famous Edmund Pettus Bridge.
1: Well, there's been so much struggle in the quest for equality since Bloody Sunday 50 years ago. We've made great strides, but inequality still impacts too many lives in this country. And we see that impact of income inequality and racial disparity in all of our communities. And certainly we've seen how it can just boil over in places like Ferguson, Missouri. Clearly, the struggle continues.
0: As we know, Margaret, such disparities impact health. So many studies illustrate the lasting and often permanent impact of poverty on children. Those social determinants such as poor housing and diet, Unemployment and riskier communities all are linked directly to poor health outcomes.
1: Well, that's right. But one thing has changed in recent years. The Affordable Care Act has been responsible for millions of uninsured Americans gaining coverage. And as we know, racial and ethnic minorities constitute the largest sector of the uninsured population. So many Americans have gained access to coverage either through Medicaid expansion or through the subsidized insurance in the exchanges. Uh, all of that's happened since the passage of the law, and I think we can say it's made a dramatic difference in many lives.
0: Indeed, it has. We see it every day. But the health care law continues to run the gauntlet of challenges, Margaret. The Affordable Care Act recently came up before the Supreme Court for the second time in three years. The case King versus Burwell sought to challenge the legality of the part of the law governing tax subsidies.
1: Well, we're really looking forward to our guest today because he was in the courtroom for those oral arguments Henry J. Aaron is a longtime health industry analyst, economist, and senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, where he's been specializing in health economics for decades. He's got a real insider's analysis of the case and its potential to derail the popular tax subsidies and some opinions on what the possible impacts of that might be.
0: Lori Robertson stops by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain.
1: And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio.
0: And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc.com or find us on Facebook or at CHC Radio on Twitter. We love hearing from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Henry J. Aaron from the Brookings Institution in just a moment. But first,
0: here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these health headlines. A fair degree of uncertainty lingers in the wake of the most recent Supreme Court hearing on the Affordable Care Act. States are looking to make contingency plans on what will happen if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the plaintiffs, arguing the law's language doesn't support the use of tax subsidies for those purchasing insurance on the federal exchanges in some 37 states. Mixed signals from the Supreme Court have states on edge about the future of health insurance subsidies for millions of Americans. And a summer decision from the justices leaves little time for backup planning. Many governors, especially Republicans, want the federal government to craft a contingency plan. And at least one governor in Pennsylvania is pursuing a state exchange, which would make sure his state was able to receive subsidies. During oral arguments, the justices appeared divided in the latest challenge to President Barack Obama's law. Opponents of the law argued that only residents in about a dozen states that set up their own insurance markets could gain federal subsidies to help pay for premiums. The case sets up an intriguing political backdrop for states like Florida and Texas, both led by Republican governors who had been... Those states now find themselves with the most at stake, with large numbers of enrollees who could take their anger out of the ballot box if they lose coverage. Another milestone for same-sex couples in this country, starting March 27th, legally married to same-sex couples will be able to take unpaid time off to care for a spouse or sick family member, even if they live in a state that doesn't recognize their marriage. The final rule issued by the Department of Labor revises the definition of spouse in the Family and Medical Leave Act to recognize legally married same-sex couples regardless of where they live. Prior to that, only couples that lived in states recognizing same-sex marriage could take advantage of the act's benefits. Currently, 37 states plus the District of Columbia permit same-sex marriages. And college and binge drinking, the two go hand-in-hand, hand, it seems. Efforts to curb excessive drinking on campuses are often a challenge. The study bears that out. The study looked at the potential impact of a one-time drinking intervention program. While drinking stopped temporarily, the effects weren't long-lasting. Women students had the best results. Male students living in fraternities were least likely to be influenced by drinking cessation programs. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines. Thank you.
0: We're speaking today with economist and health reform expert, Dr. Henry J. Aaron, the Bruce and Virginia McClure Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution, where he served for decades. Dr. Aaron was a professor of economics at the University of Maryland for 22 years, uh, was also the vice president of the American Economic Association, as well as the president of the Association of Public Policy and Management. Uh, He has been a Guggenheim fellow at Stanford, earned his undergraduate degree from UCF, UCLA, and his doctorate in economics from Harvard. Henry, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: I'm glad to be with you.
0: Yeah, you know, the Affordable Care Act. You've been working on that uh, for many years at the Brookings Institution. And for the past few years, conversation has all been around the Affordable Care Act, which you described as, a, and I love this, a catastrophic success. Uh, there continues to be a twist and turns in the road uh, for health reform. And we just saw another one uh, at the Supreme Court uh, in King versus uh, Burwell. As it might pose a real threat to the Affordable Care Act and, wonder if you could help our listeners understand the premise of the suit and who are the plaintiffs behind this challenge and what's the basis of their argument and how did this particular case go so far uh, to get to the Supreme Court?
3: Well, the Affordable Care Act works by instituting a whole set of insurance market reforms, the success of which hinges on having virtually everybody who can enroll actually enroll. And that means the healthy and the sick, the rich and the poor. Health insurance is kind of expensive, as we all know, too expensive for many people with low incomes to be able to afford decent coverage. So if you want everybody to be in, you have to provide financial help to make the plan affordable. That's just what the Affordable Care Act does. So it has tax credits. That's the device by which the aid is given. They're refundable. You get them even if you don't owe tax. Those credits are to be paid to people who enroll through health insurance exchanges. Those health insurance exchanges can be created by states, but some states elected not to create the exchanges and to leave that job to the Department of Health and Human Services which brings us to the language in the law that has led to this case. There are a few places in the law that says these tax credits can be paid to people who enroll in an exchange created by a state. Some people who had previously been very much opposed to the Affordable Care Act said, hey, this is a provision which uh, would make it illegal for these tax credits to be paid to anybody who enrolls through an exchange that was created by the Department of Health and Human Services on behalf of one of the states. The lower courts uh, disagreed. The Supreme Court decided to take one of those cases. The plaintiffs are four people who are alleged to be affected by this provision, and the other, the uh, Burwell, is the Secretary of Health and Human Services on behalf of whom the Solicitor General uh, of the United States, Donald Verrilli, argued uh, the government's case. The government's position is, yes, those words are in the law, but if you read them within the larger context of the law, what they really mean is that states can either set up exchanges themselves or they can, in effect, Use the Department of Health and the Human Services as an agent to set up the exchange for them, but that in either case, these are exchanges that were uh, created by a state. Uh, which of those two interpretations of those few words it should endorse?
1: Well, Henry, it, it does seem like a bit of a case of déjà vu all over again. Uh, it was three years ago when the fate of the Affordable Care Act was in the hands of the Supreme Court with. Uh, The ruling then uh, upheld most of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act, except for the one requiring states to. We've certainly seen, I think, around the country firsthand the results of that decision, and millions of people left without coverage. And this outcome of King versus Burwell will also then affect millions of people who receive subsidies for insurance coverage. What's at stake for them? What are their options going to be? And, And really, what's the impact on the Affordable Care Act? Is it a catastrophic failure instead of a catastrophic success?
3: Well, uh, the fact that's often overlooked, the Affordable Care Act actually doesn't have any significant effect on the health insurance coverage of the majority of Americans. If they have employer-based coverage, most of them are not in any material way affected by the Affordable Care Act. The people who are affected by the Affordable Care Act are uh, individuals or employees in small businesses who uh, purchase health insurance coverage. Uh, If the credits can't be paid, then a lot of people who are now receiving them will find that health insurance is costing them a very great deal more than it does now. And in millions of cases, insurance, uh, according to all estimates, will be unaffordable and people will elect not to buy it. Some people... Uh, who lose uh, these credits, however, probably would still continue to mm-hmm. buy insurance. And you ask yourself, who would they be? Right. Well, those would be the people who are really sick. Right. So then you're an insurance company, and all of a sudden, your customers are much sicker on the average than they were before. So you have to raise your premiums. And that means that not providing these tax credits to low and moderate income people would ramify throughout the insurance market affecting even those who don't get these credits so everybody's premiums go up whether they were eligible for these subsidies or not everybody who is buying insurance uh, as an individual Uh, the number of people without health insurance would go up somewhere in the range of seven to nine million people, which is a big hit.
0: Mm -hmm. Henry, most Americans read about arguments at the Supreme Court, and uh, few uh, get the kind of front row seat of the inner workings of the Supreme Court that you had. Maybe you could tell our listeners uh, about the sort of team that was assembled. You talked a little bit about the Solicitor General, Donald Verrilli, who uh, is up the second time defending uh, uh, the administration and the secretary on, on this But maybe talk a little bit about the amicus briefs that might have been filed and any of the other dynamics.
3: Well, it is exciting to be there. Uh, The justices arrived promptly at 10 o'clock. There were briefs presented, of course, by both the uh, plaintiffs and uh, by the government. There were dozens, maybe even scores, of so-called amicus briefs. Uh, submitted by all kinds of different groups, including, I have to do a little advertising here, one by a group of economists. uh, Ah, good. (laughs) Um, There was a set of, uh, one particularly important brief submitted by a group of attorneys general from various states who were very careful to say that the case, the the position being presented by the plaintiffs uh, was not one that they could endorse. Uh, and that brings up what may turn out to be a very important issue raised early in the arguments by uh, Justice Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned previously the fact that the uh, 2012 case disallowed the mandate to extend Medicaid coverage. The grounds for the court's decision, which was actually 7-2, to two, as I recall, was too heavy-handed, that states are in the Constitution sovereign entities and that this provision, so the argument went, uh, would have reduced the states to mere instrumentalities of the federal government. So um, Justice Kennedy's question, uh, directed at uh, or raised during the arguments by the plaintiff's attorney uh, Mr. Carvin, uh, was look, uh, if that wasn't constitutional Aren't you, Mr. Carvin, arguing for King, the plaintiffs, trying to justify something that's even a more Hmm. uh, heavy-handed use of federal power? You were telling the states, you better set up an exchange, because credits can be paid only through them. If the federal government sets up an exchange, we're going to mandate people to have coverage that they can't afford and hence won't buy. It'll make a terrible mess in your health insurance markets. So uh, Justice Kennedy raised that as an issue. Were the court to accept that line of reasoning, then presumably the four liberal justices are going to vote that the credits can be offered everywhere. But then... Other justices would say, yes, they can be offered everywhere, but the reason they can be offered is that the federal government doesn't have the power to push the states as hard uh, as uh, this threat would imply. So there could be a limit on the degree to which the federal government could encourage the state to execute national policy in the future.
1: Henry, I know you have a Brookings uh, report now on King versus Burwell called Reading the Tea Leaves that gets into that. And I understand Justice Ginsburg jumped in almost immediately and challenged the credibility of the plaintiff's own relevance in bringing the case. Tell us more about that. What what was the challenge and what was significant about the questions that Justice Ginsburg raised? Uh,
3: To be eligible to get tax credits, you have to have income low enough or Uh to fall in a category that's covered uh... by the affordable care act uh... there are four plaintiffs uh, a couple of them seem not to have either low enough income or to be in a relevant category cool. justice ginsburg was raising the question of whether the other two did as well then when solicitor general Verilli stood up he began by addressing that question uh... he said uh... do these four people Are they eligible uh, for these credits? That's a question of fact. Uh, The Supreme Court has the right to look into it. What this means is that if the justices decided that for one reason or another they really would rather not decide this case at this time, they could turn to the issue of standing and say we really don't know for sure, and then at some point, certainly it would be next year, The issue would return to the Supreme Court. It could even be later than that if the plaintiffs have standing. Now, if they don't, then the case would become moot. There would be no decision at all Hmm. unless some other plaintiffs came forward who did have standing uh, to relitigate everything uh, through the district uh, court, the circuit court, and eventually to the Supreme Court. And that would probably be sometime after the next presidential election. Mm
0: -hmm. We're speaking today with Dr. Henry J. Aaron, economist and health reform expert at the Brookings Institution. He's a member of the Institute of Medicine and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Henry, I want to diverge a little. So the issue is really about uh, a state-run plan. And I'm wondering if a state like California were to run the plans for the states that weren't covered. Uh, Would that count in your mind? What are you hearing uh, about options here?
3: Uh, You're asking a question that every uh, health policy person in the nation is discussing. And I think the consensus is, uh, if you can think of what might happen, it probably will happen. (laughs) Uh, All kinds of different things. You just mentioned one that's uh, quite uh, interesting and important. A number of the states that decided not to run exchanges, well, some did it for purely ideological reasons. They don't like the reform. They don't like President Obama. They don't want to do anything uh, with this law at all. But in some other cases, uh, states elected to let uh, HHS set up the exchanges for them because they knew correctly that it would be extremely difficult, um, and so it has turned out to be. Uh, just north of california is of course oregon which (laughs) uh... tried to set up a own exchange uh... it turned out to be pretty disastrous uh... in the rollout and they ended up going back to the federal exchange uh... they well could uh... send a uh... an email quickly to uh... sacramento Mm -hmm. and say uh... you've done pretty well in california you've got a a functioning exchange, not without problems, but uh, you've stayed afloat quite nicely. Uh, would you? Uh, we'll pay you. You come in and do ours, mm-hmm. and that would count as a state exchange.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
3: now, uh, in addition, of course, uh, Congress will then there would be pressure on Congress to <clears throat> maybe uh, pass legislation, short term or permanent. Uh, it could be either way. Uh, to continue the tax credits in uh, the states that uh, would be affected by the decision. Uh, The uh, Republicans who have opposed the bill could say, well, we'll do this if we get something else that we really would like. Um, They might not be able to get it through Congress. All of this would happen in the latter half of this year, during which, It's expected there are going to be some pretty bitter negotiations over the budget Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, sequestration. So all of this could get jumbled up into uh, a very big scrambled mess.
1: Well, Henry, I'd like to cycle back to your observation of the healthcare law as a uh, a success. Where we sit in Connecticut, uh, the rollout of the exchange was uh, pretty successful, so successful that yep. our executive director went off to Washington <laughs> to run the federal exchange. And so they're we're...
3: also uh, you're running uh, Maryland, part of that. <laughs> That's right. We are. <laughs> That's, right. That's right,
1: which we're, we're pretty happy about. Um, but it has been uh, a success uh, on many levels in terms of accomplishing its goals of uh vastly reducing the numbers of uninsured and improving access to care. But at the same time, there is so much going on to transform care itself, to fundamentally transform the way we deliver care. And we hear the good news that the rate of growth in spending uh, has slowed considerably. So maybe from the, uh, the bird's eye view of The economist the impact of the Affordable Care Act on the slowing of uh, the escalation of health care costs and the changes in health system delivery, or do you think those changes were underway with or without the Affordable Care Act?
3: The slowdown in spending began before the uh, Affordable Care Act was enacted. Um, So one can't uh, assign that uh, part of the slowdown uh, to the ACA. There, uh, since the um, ACA has taken effect, the uh, slowdown has continued, which itself is news. You don't expect mm-hmm. necessarily that the slowdown continues indefinitely. We've had slowdowns in the past that were short-lived. Uh, we still don't know for sure how long this one is going to mm. last. The acceleration of or the growth of health care spending could accelerate mm-hmm. economists, including us right here at Brookings disagree on the likelihood of that happening. My own view is that uh, in a certain sense both the slowdown and the Affordable Care Act are the results of a change in uh, public attitudes by business, by insurers, by government, uh, really a, a tidal shift in attitudes. Toward the growth of healthcare spending, suddenly uh, it has become distinctly uh to want to uh, push up costs uh, in larger sections of uh, the public than in the past. There are changes in organization, um, a factor that not people don't necessarily focus on much, but could be important. Increasingly, doctors are female, uh, and that women have been willing to practice in settings that uh, can be used to control the growth of spending more than uh, men have been in the past. So, I think there's a good chance that the slowdown will continue. Uh, A great deal is at stake because the growth of healthcare spending was expected to be the principal force driving budget deficits. Mm -hmm. And if that slowdown continues, the budget deficit problem really shrinks dramatically.
0: We've been speaking today with Dr. Henry J. Aaron, economist and health reform expert at the Brookings Institution. You can learn more about his work by going to brookings.edu slash expert slash Aaron H. Henry, thanks so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Conversations on health care, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about health care reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: Is there a connection between illegal immigration and the recent measles outbreak? That's what Representative Mo Brooks suggested. But while it is difficult to pinpoint precise origins of disease outbreaks, there is no evidence supporting the link between the recent outbreaks and illegal immigration. In a radio interview, Brooks, a Republican from Alabama, said that the immunization practices in the home countries of immigrants who are living in the U.S. illegally could be responsible for outbreaks like the recent spread of measles. That outbreak includes most of the 102 cases in 14 states in the month of January. It is likely that the outbreak originated from outside the U.S., but the director of the CDC's National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases has said illegal immigration isn't the likely culprit. Americans returning from travel abroad or foreign visitors could have brought measles to Disneyland parks in California. The countries under investigation as a possible source include Indonesia, India, and the United Arab Emirates. For part of 2014, the CDC was able to pinpoint the origin for 280 cases of measles. It counted 45 direct importations of the disease, which included 40 U.S. residents returning home and five foreign visitors. Only three of the transfers came from the Americas. As for countries' vaccination rates, back in the 1980s, Central American countries had low rates of measles vaccinations, but that's no longer the case. Since 2000, those countries' rates for one-year-olds have been largely on par with or have exceeded that of the United States. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
1: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Kenneth Shinizuka was a young boy, his beloved grandfather was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and he watched as his grandfather gradually became dependent on constant care by family caregivers. Many Alzheimer's patients are given to wandering, often at night when those caregivers are sleeping and they can land in dangerous,
5: sometimes deadly situations. Over the past 12 years, his condition got worse and worse and his wandering in particular caused my family a lot of stress. My aunt, his primary caregiver, really struggled to stay awake at night to keep an eye on him and even then often failed to catch him leaving the bed. I became really concerned about my aunt's well-being as well as my grandfather's safety.
1: And when his own grandfather was found wandering on the freeway one night, he set to work. He thought, what if I designed a sock with sensors that would trigger an alarm on a caregiver's phone when an Alzheimer's patient's feet hit the floor?
5: I was looking after my grandfather and I saw him stepping out of the bed. The moment his foot landed on the floor, I thought, why don't I put a pressure sensor on the heel of his foot? Once he stepped onto the floor and out of the bed, the pressure sensor would detect an increase in pressure caused by body weight and then wirelessly send an audible alert to the caregiver's smartphone. That way, my aunt could sleep much better at night without having to worry about my grandfather's wandering. First, I had to create a wearable sensor that was thin and flexible enough to be worn comfortably on the bottom of the patient's foot.
1: Speaking at a recent TEDMED talk, the 15-year-old inventor realized that once he designed the sensor, he needed to design the app that would send the signal to the caregiver's smartphone. And yep, he says now there's an app for that.
5: <laughs> Lastly, I had to code a smartphone app that would essentially transform the caregiver's smartphone into a remote monitor. For this, I had to expand upon my knowledge of coding with Java and Xcode, and I also had to learn about how to code for Bluetooth low energy devices.
1: He tested his sock sensor for six months on his grandfather and it successfully signaled an alert almost 500 times during that test period, a 100% success rate. So he took his sock sensors to a nursing home for beta testing and realized he needed to make a few more adaptions.
5: So, sensor data collected on a vast number of patients can be useful for improving. Uh, patient care, and also leading to a cure for the disease, possibly. For example, I'm currently examining correlations between the frequency of a patient's nightly wandering and his or her daily activities and diet.
1: Shinazuka's device has since earned him the $50,000 Scientific American Science in Action Award and is going into full-scale production soon. A thin, coin-sized sensor that's worn on the bottom of the foot transmits a message to the caregivers via their smartphone and alerts them when a patient stands up also alerting them to a potentially dangerous situation for their loved one. That gives peace of mind to all involved. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
2: And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.